Well, I guess you can be seated. Thank you, Michael. You may, you may be seated. Man, no respect in this courtroom. Today we come to the end of Amos chapter 9. And the title of today is All Rise because the judge is, on, is at hand. Uh, the deliberations have been given, the closing arguments have been presented, and now it's time for the judge to execute his judgment. And to be honest with you, I was going to come in that side door, but I forgot that it locks. Oh, oh, my God. God. And so I, I had to come in the back. Um, the other thing was uh, this morning I wanted to take the opportunity to either wear... How often do you get to wear what you graduated in? Not very often. Um, and then the other was uh, I also wanted to be able to have something that was like camouflage, like actual like, you know, hunting gear, that kind of thing, which <laughs> believe it or not, I don't, I don't have much camouflage in my household. And so, but then I was like, our background is basically all black. And so the idea of like last week, can you hear me now? This week, can you see me now? And the reason why I bring that up, the idea of being camouflaged and the idea of trying to, to hide from you and blend in with the background, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, I could even, like, cover my face and do this, and you'd be like, I can see you. It's, it's obvious. It's blatantly clear. And yet, sometimes what we do is we have this ridiculous notion that we can hide from God, that we could flee from God and from His presence, and so this morning, it's, uh, it's, it's an intense main idea, but it's still the truth, is that you cannot hide from your maker's sight, nor can you hide from his might. You can't hide from your maker's sight or his might. No matter how hard we may try, no matter how much we might convince ourselves that that could be true, it's just not possible. And so as we come to the end, we have one more week next week um, with the book of Amos, and as we come to the end in chapter 9, just listen to, verse, listen to verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. This is the last vision that God has given to Amos. And if you've been with us, you know that in chapter 7, there were about four visions. In chapter 8, there was another vision. Now in chapter 9, this is that last vision that God is giving to the prophet Amos to declare to the northern kingdom of Israel and he says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword, and they will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. The altar that's referenced in chapter 9, verse 1, would have been the royal sanctuary, probably a place of worship in the city of Bethel, where they would perform their religious rites and acts. But as you guys have been with us all throughout the study of Amos, is that even in Amos chapter 3, we, we saw that, that ritual and that routine of insincere worship, of this is just what we do. We're God's people, and so we need to go through the rigmarole. We need to go through the process. We need to go through the ritual. Now God is standing beside that altar where they are found guilty of their empty ritualism. And he's letting them know in just a moment with the rest of the first few verses of chapter 9 is just our first point this morning. You can't hide from God. So if you're taking notes, I would just encourage you, just put that over there by the first four verses. You can't hide from God. And I know for a lot of us, we would go, well, that's obvious. In the same way, it would be silly to think that you could hide or blend into the background. It's obvious that we're going to see you. But yet, time and time again, we have individuals, and we have moments in my life, there may be even moments in your life right now, maybe even in your own mind and heart, you have this sense of, 
I'm keeping this thing, this thought, this conduct, this behavior, it's being kept from those closest to me on this earth. My spouse has no idea. My closest friends have no idea. People in this church have no idea. And we think that we can hide those things from the Lord as well. But as we're going to see, that is just just not the case. Uh, Look at verse 2. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. Can't hide from God. God's sinful people though they are His people, the chosen people of Israel, the northern kingdom specifically, God's people, though, were still sinful and unable to escape from the judgment of God because God's dominion, hear me well, God's dominion is worldwide. And He gives the example of He references Sheol, that subterranean land of the dead that was prominent in Israelite thought. He says, you could go there, I will still find you. He references the sky and a mountaintop. He says, even if you ascend to the heaven or if you get to the top of Mount Carmel, that beautiful place and sanctuary, I'll find you there as well. You could swim to the bottom of the sea. You cannot escape me. Even if you were to flee and be taken into exile and think, I've experienced judgment because my enemies have me, I will still even find you there. You will experience not just judgment upon this earth, you will experience a divine judgment. You cannot flee from God. And just a little over a year ago, we saw an example of this in another prophetic book, the book of Jonah. And many of you, you know that story of Jonah, where Jonah is called upon by God in those opening verses of the book of Jonah, and he says, arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah. I have basically a word that I want you to tell the Ninevites. And Jonah gets up and he says, I ain't going to go east, I'm going to go west. And he goes down to the port and he goes down into a boat so that he could go all the way to Tarshish, basically modern day Spain, so he could get away from God and away from the commands of God and the word of God because I want to separate myself from God because I don't like what God is thinking, doing, or asking me to do. Have you ever been there? God, I don't like what you're saying. I don't like what you're thinking. I don't like what your word says. I don't really like it what it is that you're asking me to do. It's uncomfortable. It's extreme. It just seems impossible to be able to obey. But the reality is, is that what God is calling us to do is always good, but it's not always easy. It's always good. It's always right, but it's not always easy. In fact, even as last week when we had an opportunity for those who went to the DR to share, Doug used the word stretchy. And the thing that I found that makes trips like that so enjoyable an experience is because we are stretched and we have to rely, yes, upon the Lord for strength and for grace and for patience and for energy to go the next day just 90 to nothing from about 7 a.m. to about 9 p.m. But we also got to rely on one another. And my hope and my prayer is that that's not just something that you have to leave the country for. That that's something that we at Mission Point experience. That as we go into this semester, as we go onto the campus of MTSU today, and yeah, it's going to be hot. It's hot, get over it. <laughs> Souls are at stake. 
Oftentimes we talk about, God, I wish things would change, and yet do we get on our face and cry out, God, may it change with me. God, I want to see change in our country. We bellyache about it all the time, but do we put prayers before the Lord, let alone feet to our prayers? May we be a people and individual who say, God, we want to, we're willing to be stretched. And sometimes when we hear that, we hear maybe a pastor share that or someone who's passionate about something, and we go, uh, but, but, but I'm not called to that. But this is what I would say. We're all called to be ambassadors of reconciliation, and we're all called to make disciples of Christ, and we're all called to live out in a manner worthy of our calling. And it's going to look different for some of us with our personalities and our likes and our opinions and our preferences, but the mandate remains the same. The request that Jesus makes, as we read in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Do you believe the word that in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, there is a harvest that is plentiful? So much so that the harvest winds, if you will, are blowing here into Murfreesboro because we got countless people moving into our community every single month. And some of you are like, I wish they would not keep coming because traffic is ridiculous. But they are coming. We could complain about it or we could see opportunity. And sometimes we might hear this and say, well, is it opportunity so that we can grow? Perhaps, but it's opportunity that the kingdom can be advanced, that God's name be glorified, and that people go from the kingdom of darkness, eternal separation from God Almighty forever and ever and ever and ever in a place that is very real of torment and death and gnashing of teeth, or an eternity in the kingdom of light, a part of His kingdom forever and ever and that we would rise up and we'd say, no, 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 not on, not on my watch. I will not flee from that. I will, I, will, I will run into that, if you will, on my knees, which would kind of be an awkward run, but you get my idea, that idea of humility. Listen to the words of the psalmist, Psalm 139. You'll see it on the screen. You can write it down again, just uh, maybe to the side of verses 1 through 4, so you can go back and look at it. But it's a good reference point as we, as we just read verses 1 through 4 of Amos The psalmist writes, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You cannot escape from the judgment of the Lord. It, it reminds me of uh, some of you have played hide-and-seek with children, haven't you? It's quite adorable. Uh, I remember playing hide-and-seek. I can't remember with who. It may have been some, with some kids at camp. I don't remember what it was, but even not that young, and they would go and hide, and their giggles would give them away, and very quickly you knew exactly where they were. They couldn't flee. They couldn't hide, even though they thought they were the best hiders in all the world you were able to easily find them. Friends, sometimes we think, man, we are so smart. We're so educated. We're so experienced. I'm pretty good at kind of deceiving or hiding things from those that are around me. But to you, you are just a little child giggling and making yourself squirm as you're trying to hide behind that chair or under that blanket. And God is like, you're right there. I see you. Now, that can give us pause for maybe fear and trepidation, but that could also give you pause of, my God sees me. He sees you. Second point, 
Second point is in verses 5 through 6. It's the all rise, the judge has entered his courtroom. Look at verse 5. It says, The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt, the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth, he who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. The question might be by some within the northern kingdom of Israel. Sometimes the question is even today because we speak of our God who is full of mercy, grace, and love, and absolutely He is. But God wants it to be made clear and wants Amos to declare this to the northern kingdom of Israel and to us today that when the judgment comes, we don't have to wonder who or where it came from. God puts His stamp on it. He puts His name on it. He signs off at the beginning of verse 5 and at the end of verse 6. He says, the Lord God of hosts, that's Yahweh, and the Lord is His name. If there's any wondering where the judgment is coming from and who has the authority, it is God Almighty. And this is where at times we go, but, but man this is harsh and this is hard because his judgments are coming and it's as if we forget that aspect, that part of God's nature is that he is, he is eternally righteous and true and good and holy and set apart. And that when there are things that come up that are sinful and evil, for him to turn and to look away, how does that line up with his character and his nature? It has to be dealt with. It has to. But his judgments are good. Listen to this from Revelation 19. It says, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Because his judgments are true and righteous. Your salvation that you cling to of, Thank you, Lord, for your grace and my salvation found in Christ. It's not just because he's like, oh, here you go. It's because his judgments are good and true. He's staying true to his character when salvation comes your way. But for that to happen, something had to be done with your sin and our evil. Psalm 19, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. This judge is described in Amos chapter 4, Amos chapter 5. He's literally referred to here in verse 5, Amos chapter 9, as the Lord God of hosts. Literally, he is the Lord of armies. We even read this a little bit earlier in our scripture reading today. But we find that in verse 6, the earth and all that belongs to the Lord, it's his dominion. In Nehemiah chapter 9, it says, You alone are the Lord, you made the heavens, the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. This is God's place. So he has all the rule, the right, and the authority to make his judgments be whatever they may be, but they are good and they are righteous. Thirdly, no one, no one is immune to judgment. Not even sweet, precious, adorable you. No one is immune to judgment. Look at verse 7. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Armenians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. He's talking about Israel. He's calling them the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it ooh, from the face of the earth. Underline this. 
Here's that glimmer of hope, that good news in the midst of harsh but good and righteous judgment. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Here's his other stamp. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations as a grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Now, I make the comment that no one is immune to judgment, but Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, believed themselves to be privileged as being called and chosen as the people of God. We saw that in chapter 3 of Amos, verse 2. They thought themselves immune to the judgment and that they were only destined for glory. And what you find in the midst of this is the arrogance and the pride of the northern kingdom of Israel. The arrogance and the pride that this idea of what was given to them is just something that they just have as opposed to understanding where it comes from. And the Israelites, God gives this in description in verse 7, are no different in the sight of God than any other nation. It's just that Israel, by God's grace, happened to be chosen to represent Him. And so they do have a special advantage that makes them even more responsible and culpable in God's sight. Again, we saw that in Amos chapter 3. So therefore, God, for this reason, is still going to punish this nation for its sins because, again, no one is immune to judgment. Not Israel, and not even our first parents. Think of how when God created Adam, and out of, Eve, out of Adam, Eve was also created. And they're placed in the most perfect and set-apart of circumstances, the Garden of Eden. And sometimes we make this comment, God, if I could have all of my circumstances exactly the right way, then I'll follow you. Proof is in the pudding. No, you won't. <laughs> Adam and Eve had it perfect. Absolutely perfect. I know it's hot weather, beautiful. They didn't, have to, they didn't have to worry about anything. Everything was provided for them. They cultivated, they worked the land, but there were no weeds, there were no thorns, there were no thistles. It was a joy for them to be in the garden of the Lord and to work it and to live in the presence of the Lord and with one another in perfect harmony. They had the best and most perfect of circumstances in their life. And yet, even in the midst of that, when deception came their way from the serpent Satan, they lingered on that moment of temptation, which temptation is not a sin, but they lingered on that moment of temptation and they bit into it. And it forever changed their lives and it's forever changed our lives. But sometimes what we can say is, God, if you would just get me that job. God, if you could just heal this sickness. God, if you would just help me in this relationship with a loved one or with a friend, God, if I could just have a little bit more experience, then I will serve you. And we keep putting parameters of what we're really wanting is we're wanting our external to be a certain way for us to follow him and to live for him. But the fact of the matter is, is that's not going to change. What has to change is something from within, a transformation from within that then goes outwardly, that our conduct, our behavior, our thoughts, our desires, they're changed from within. So Israelites, the northern kingdom of Israel, they're not immune to God's judgment. Not even the first parents are immune. They even try to hide and flee from God. You remember that in the story. They bite into the apple and God's basically like, 
where are you guys? He knows exactly where they are, but it says they hid themselves, and they did what humanity has been doing ever since then. Whenever we are confronted, and today I'm going to have you, whether you're uncomfortable with it or not, confront sin in your life. Identify it specifically. And that's going to be uncomfortable for a moment. But a lot of theologians wonder, because God is a God of justice and judgment and righteousness and holiness, but He's also the God of grace, mercy, and love. What if, just what if, Adam, when he was called upon by God of where are you, he said, I'm here, a sinner, disobedient to you, and I throw myself at your mercy. And he confessed and he repented. But he did what we do. He said, first of all, I'm going to hide from you because I don't want you to see this because I know it's not good. And the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to play the blame game. And it sounds like I'm going to blame the woman that you gave me, but really I'm blaming you, God. He says, the woman that you gave me caused this sin. And the woman goes, blah, 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 it's not me, it's the serpent. The serpent did it. He deceived me. All three parties have to deal with consequences of their sin because no one is immune from the judgment of sin. Oh, but what if they had sought the Lord to live? What if they had cried out in repentance and confession? We won't know because that's not the story. But if we're not careful, what we do at times, even as followers of Jesus Christ, our art, our salvation is not at stake here. That's not what we're talking about, a loss of salvation. But what we are talking about is the reality of sin within our lives as individuals that sometimes we think, well, I got my fire insurance, I'm good to go, and yet the joy of your salvation is anywhere but near your heart. And the peace of God and the presence of God is so far from you that you're miserable sitting where you're sitting even right now because your circumstances are hard. We don't want to belittle the circumstances, but we don't want to make them more than they are. We don't want to make them be justification or reason of why we would be disobedient or why we wouldn't be obedient. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this. He's, this is the Apostle Paul talking to Christians at the church in Corinth. He says, for we, he's including himself, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We will give an account of all the things that we've done, even as followers of Jesus, whether good or bad. And it will be tested with fire, as it says in Corinthians chapter 2 or 3. And some of the things that we have done, it's going to be like precious metal, and it's going to be tested with fire, and it's going to be preserved, and it's going to be, that was valuable, that was eternally valuable, that was an eternal investment. But there are going to be other things that we're going to bring before the Lord, and it's going to be like hay, wood, and straw, and it's going to be burned up, and it's going to be what you gave your time and attention and money and just passion towards had no eternal investment whatsoever. Now, this isn't to say that you can't enjoy the things of life. I believe God has created this world for us to be able to enjoy it and to enjoy some of those things that aren't going to have that eternal impact. But it's also that reminder of, am I being intentional about the mission and the call that God has placed upon my life personally and for the church family that I'm a part of, of what He's called us to do and who He has called us to be? 
And that we would remember that no matter how bleak or how difficult it may get, and I don't know what the future holds, no one, none of us know what the future holds in our lives personally, in our lives as a family, in our lives as a country and as a nation. But what I do know is that there is a God above who is good and kind, and He has seen Christians through the most horrendous of circumstances. And there's always been a remnant that no matter how hot the fire got, they remained faithful. Oh, may that be us, that we would remain faithful. He says at the very end of verse 8, man, let this be a verse that you cling to as you walk away from here. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. He has every right to do so. But there's always a remnant. There's always a people of God. Here's the sad thing. This is, again, another final word of declaration from the prophet Amos to get the northern kingdom to wake up, to listen, that you might seek me and live, that judgment is on its way. But sadly, what history demonstrates is that the word and the warnings of God provided through Amos was not heard, let alone heeded, by the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the judgment of God comes just as he said it would because nothing changed. They remain just as insincere in their worship, and they remain just as passionate about their injustice so that they could fill up their coffers and they were consumed with greed. There was no change, there was no repentance. And so about 30 years from this time, here comes the mighty kingdom of Assyria, a kingdom that the northern kingdom of Israel was buddying up with. And they knew they didn't believe in God or the things of God, but we're going to buddy up with you because you might help us in our circumstances. Friends, beware of who you buddy up with <laughs> if they are anti the things of God. Here's the historical account from your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 17. In the ninth year of Hoshua, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and Israel uh, away in, into exile into Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about, and here's why. This came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the king of Israel, which they had introduced. Some of you know my friend Parker who has been able to fill in for me from time to time and wrote the book. One of the things that he writes in his book towards the end of Amos as he says, is there a limit to what God will take? And it seems that the answer is yes. Yes, there is. But friends, listen to me. And this isn't just to throw Jesus and sprinkle him in. But this is, this is just the truth of the matter. This is just the truth. Jesus Christ has come and his work upon the cross, hear me, is complete. Complete. The loss of salvation for you as a follower of Jesus is not to be feared in this moment. But listen to me, if you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're, when you are born into this world, sometimes maybe in our country or just because of how we're raised or whatever, we think that our default destination is I'm going to heaven because look at me. Your default destination because you are born into sin is not heaven, it's eternal separation from God. It's called hell. But God in His grace and His love 
says that that doesn't have to be your destination because I and my great love will send my son to die in your place, the death that you deserve, and there will be this great exchange to where you deserve this, but my son will take it for you. And you will never have to worry about your salvation for eternity, forever and ever and ever. You will be with me. But hear me, hear me, and hear me well. Sometimes as Christians, this is what we do. We think, oh, well, I'm in good with God. And just like the northern kingdom of Israel, we don't think the judgment or the discipline of God could ever come our way. Friends, read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There were people who were so disobedient to God by just going through the motions and basically taking the Lord's Supper in vain that God said, some of you are sick and some of you have died because you have come in an unworthy manner to the table. Hebrews chapter 12 lets us know about the good and right discipline of a heavenly father to his children because he doesn't discipline those who aren't his kids, he disciplines those who are his kids. And so God's judgment, God's discipline can still be a possibility that will come into your life as perhaps you think that you are hiding or fleeing from God because of things that you are doing, thinking, or experiencing. My desire is that these words of Amos, this whole book that we've studied, that we would see it as this clarion call of a warning that this could be you. The judgment of God, even as a Christian, not for your salvation and for your eternity, but the discipline of God could easily fall upon you if we continue to think that the things that I struggle with and the things that are sin in my life, I just kind of sweep them under the rug or I'm fleeing and hiding from God aren't a big deal. Man, it's a big deal to the Lord because you carry His name. You represent Him. You're a walking billboard for the kingdom of Jesus. When they see you, do they see Christ? Or do they see more of the world? Do they see more of themselves? Oh, may these words of Amos drive us to our knees. The one, to the one who desires that we would seek him and live, to know and experience his love and his grace. So in just a moment, we're going to have a time to to pray, because I think what the kingdom of Israel did not do is they didn't go to God. They didn't pray. They didn't spend time in His presence. And what I want to ask you guys to do this morning is, is not conjure up or make up something so that way you can fill this time, but far too often, at least in my life, I can get so busy with living and doing things that I don't, I don't take the time to be serious with the sin that is going on in my life. And every one of us, we have areas that we struggle with, that we wrestle with, but how often are we specifically identifying them? And when it does creep up and we do succumb to those areas in our life that we know are sinful, we attempt to run from that or hide from that, maybe even from ourselves. And so just as an example, here's some broad categories that might be for you today. Is the sin of anxiety or worry at the forefront of your heart and mind? Sometimes we use the word concern because that doesn't sound like worry. That's just a fancy word for worry, and it's still sinful. (laughs) Or, Or maybe it's the area of anger. Maybe it's just something within your life is bubbling up within you 
as a result of maybe a relationship or something going on around you. Or, or maybe it's lust. Maybe there's an image on a screen that even last night that you were looking at that you know is not appropriate. Maybe it's slothfulness. Maybe it's just laziness. Maybe it's just wanting to be comfortable and that is the goal that you want to achieve on this side of heaven is can I be comfortable and live a life of ease and really what you are doing is live a life of slothfulness, of laziness. Or maybe it's fear. Maybe there's something in your life that you fear more than the Lord and we've seen that that is always going to lead us astray from the things of God, the people of God, and the Word of God. Is there some fear in your life that you need to identify and recognize? Or maybe it's pride. And I think fear and pride are almost like cousins, if you will. And this is what I want you to do in just a moment. I want us to be able to confess. But whatever you identify, I want you to take a moment to confess this to the Lord. And then I want you to take that humble step of finding an individual, not every individual, someone that you trust, that you can walk through this life, that you could tell them the most heinous thing, and you know that they love you, but they love you enough not to say, oh, that's okay. That wasn't that bad. It's like, no, sinful and appropriate, but I will walk with you through it. That's what we need in the church, is not just letting something slide, but saying, in truth, that is wrong, but in grace, I love you. I support you. Not what you did, I support you. I love you. To give you an example of this, and I'm just getting really hot. Hang on. And Isaac, if you want, come on up. To give you an example of this, um, thanks, man. A couple of years ago, I was going through just a very fearful time of what the Lord would have me do in an area of my life. And I began to pray, and I identified that I was afraid, that there was fear. But what I found was that category is so big and so broad that it didn't help me just to come to the Lord and say, God, help, my, help me not to be afraid. The Lord finally got my attention to a point through relationships on this earth, and specifically in my communication with my wife, of Stephen, you need to specifically identify what it is that you fear, because how is it that you can confess it specifically if you don't know what it is? How do you know what you're asking the Lord to help you overcome? Some of you might be that broad category of lust. It might be that broad category of anger. It might be that broad category of slothfulness. But what I'm asking you to do in this moment is saying, yeah, that's a category of mine that I'm wrestling with and struggling with, but, but can I funnel it down to, is there something or some things that are specifically that I'm fearful of. And when God was calling us to perhaps move from a place of comfort, familiarity, and stability, there was excitement, but there was also fear of, God, if I leave this place, how will I provide for my family? And I had this big category of just, I'm, I'm afraid, Lord, and he woke me up in the middle of the night, and I wrote it down on my, on my phone so I wouldn't forget it. And basically, it was this, this call into my life of the Lord just saying, are you going to live in fear or are you going to walk by faith? Are you going to live in fear or are you going to walk by faith? 
And I began to specifically identify, like I got down to the brass tacks. I was like, Lord, I'm afraid that I'm not going to have the money to be able to have food on the table. I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to find a job whenever I need it to be able to pay the bills. I'm afraid I'm going to have to live with Parker Bradley for far longer than I want to, and I'm about to celebrate my 10th wedding anniversary, and I don't want to celebrate my 10th wedding anniversary at Parker's house. And I did. I got specific of the fears that I had because it was sinful, and it wasn't until I got specific with it that I began to experience the freedom of taking that to the Lord, because he says in 1 Peter, cast all your cares upon him. Cast all your anxiety upon him. But sometimes we go, all right, God, here's my anxiety. That's what you said to do. Get specific and just see, not that your circumstances, they may stay the same, and you may have to live in the basement floor or the the bottom bedroom uh, room of your friend Parker's house on your 10th wedding anniversary. That might be what you get. That might be your circumstance. But you know what I didn't have? I didn't have a crippling fear. I still had an unpleasant circumstance, but I didn't have a crippling fear. So for you, maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride. But what is, what is that area of your life right now, not a year ago, but right now that you're just wrestling with? And would you be courageous enough and humble enough to take a moment to identify it and take it to the Lord. So I've asked Isaac if he would, I just want him just to play. And this is what we're going to do for our time of response. Is I just want you to take a few moments where you're at. It might be that for you to stay focused and not get distracted is I need to get on my knees. For others of you, I need to stand. For others of you, I'm just going to sit exactly where I am. I'm not going to move at all. But However you need to spend this time, let's not be like the nation of Israel and just go, ah, I'll deal with it later. Ah, it's not a big deal. Your sin is a big deal. And it's causing you anxiety and worry. And so now you're in that vicious cycle of, God, I'm worried. And now I'm worried about being worried. And I wish I wasn't worried that I was worried. And now you're just like, ah, it's like, take it to the Lord. Be specific. I'm going to give you a few minutes. Take some time, bow your head, close your eyes, get in that posture that you need. And identify specifically that area of your life you need to take to the Lord.
As you continue in prayer, <clears throat> perhaps you're beginning to have just enough moment of a calm to begin to see and identify that, that area of your life that you need to specifically take to the Lord. Sometimes it's hard. Next thing that I ask you to do is say, God, help me to identify someone. And this isn't everyone. It's not what James is talking about in James 5 when we confess our sins to one another. But someone that you can trust. And it's not that you're having to unload everything on them. You don't even have to get super specific. But maybe there's someone in your life, a sibling or a spouse, a dear friend, that you could just say, today I identified something that I need prayer for. And I'm tired of feeling suffocated or shackled by this. I'm exhausted, actually. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of being worried with worry. I'm tired of struggling with this issue of lust that I've taken to the Lord again and again and again, and yet it keeps cropping up. Ask the Lord to help you identify who that individual might be that you could talk to. Because you're not alone. Last thing I want to ask you to do, and you don't have to do this by any means, it's just being offered to you. As your pastor and as your shepherd, you can't even be specific with me because you're sitting there and I'm standing here. But you're just like, Pastor, there is a category, there is an area of my life that, would you just pray for me? I'm not going to know what it is. If you want to share with me, you can, but you don't need to. But would you just pray for me because I'm tired and I'm exhausted and I know it's sinful and I know you can't abdicate me from my sin. Only Jesus does that. But pastor, would you pray for me? If that's you, just raise your hand. Put it back up, put it up, put it down. And I'll pray for you. See you, yeah? Anyone else? Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, anyone else? Amen. Anybody else? Just say, Pastor, pray for me. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Church, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing the third verse in the chorus of How Great Thou Art, because I like it. And I want you to leave this place, even though you've identified something that makes your skin cringe, and sometimes we do not like to be confronted with sin, because it makes us uncomfortable. 
But oh, friend, if you would cast it to Jesus and then praise his name, I, I hope and pray that you leave this place with a little skip in your step and a burden lifted from your shoulders of, I finally took it to Jesus and I can actually see it for what it is. It's not just fear, it's I'm afraid of not having enough money. I'm afraid of not having this job. I'm afraid of whatever it may be. Oh, I pray that you would know that burden to be released. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for my, for my friends and for my family here. I pray that you would just, that as we would bring uh, honest, heart, gut-wrenching just truths of things that we're recognizing about ourselves, that we would just leave it simple and just lay it at your feet. May we recognize in the same way that we could not be transformed and saved by, from our sin, that in our own effort and strength, we cannot overcome any sin in our life, any struggle in our life. We need you, and we need the power of your Holy Spirit to work in and through us to overcome those things that are so, so hard. And Father, I pray that, yes, it's for a personal relief of just having that burden lifted, but Father, also because we want to glorify you. We want to see your kingdom come, your will be done. We want to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, and so often we are sidelining ourselves or being sidelined and being intricate pieces and members and tools and parts of the body of Christ to be a part of something that is so magnificent, which is advancing your kingdom. We don't want to miss that. We want to be a part of that. And so, Lord, I pray that, that these who have taken things to you this morning, though their circumstances may look exactly the same when they get in their car, that because they've gone to you, the living God, they're different from the inside. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would, would you stand and would you sing?